I'm winded now. I'm going to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter, chapter 2. It is winter for sure. I uh, hope you like it. I love it. I love it Monday through Friday, to be honest. Saturday and Sunday, it, it stresses me out, but uh, I love winter, winter Monday through Friday. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, this is kind of kind of it, man. We, we're in 2022. And it's kind of hard to remember. It's, it's certainly uh, not registered completely. I have referred to it as 2021 and 2020 already this week. I'm a little behind. Um, and I, I'm sure, like you are, I mean, as you sit down and you think about everything in the past and you think about 2022, I know you're in the same boat that I am and you're like, 2022 is going to be awesome. Right? You're all thinking that? Yeah. I mean, we've got so much so much track behind us that we can definitely look at it and be like, yeah, this is going great. It's trending the right way. Um, I have no idea what 2022 holds. I know that doesn't surprise anybody. Um, but it could very possibly hold the same angst of 2021 and 2020. Whether it be uh, uh, medical angst, scientific angst, political angst, could be racial disunity can continue. Um, bullying around the world by large countries, military coups, brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who are running for their lives because they suffer what is real persecution, not this pretend stuff that we tend to feel sometimes. Um, and and I, think, I think what was demonstrated very clearly in the last couple of years is that when, when difficulty comes, and that, that, that cultural chaos of whatever moment we find ourselves in just kind of erupts and it just kind of rises, um, that can often lead the church into reaction. Now, let me, before I continue, define church. I don't mean this place. I mean you. The church is a people, redeemed through the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That's the church. So it's, the church is God's bride. That is you. And I think too often in the cultural chaos of a moment, we can react. And oftentimes we react from a pedestal. We, we cast skeptical glances at people who may hold to a different political ideology than we do. We, we um, operate in this incredible sphere that has become more and more popular. Um, it's a sphere of artificial courage. That's called social media. Because there's no consequences to you typing something out real quick and hitting send. So we're very brave when we're attacking people we don't know, something they may have said, but we ripped it out of context, and we just assume that they're terrible people. And so the tension has built and continues to build, and we look around, and you've got right-wing, left-wing, and huge collisions in the middle. You've got the wealthy and the poor. You've got um, black and white chaos is just happening. And, and, okay, you've got ravens and stealers, right? Maybe some of you just need that breath, like, okay, this is getting way serious really fast. Raven-stealers is a legit conflict, right? How do you live in peace with all of those divisions? Well, for raven-stealers, you cheer for Washington, <laughs> which that's a poor choice. I got you. <laughs> Um, and I think we've fallen for the lie that all of a sudden everything's crazy. 
And what I want to tell you, and this, hopefully you find this somewhat encouraging, it's a little weird, it's always been crazy. It's just for some reason or another, and I don't know the mind of God in this, in the last few years he's peeled back layers so that we can see the ugly underbelly of some of the things that are happening. And, and so, while it might be difficult to be able to live in peace through some of that chaos, the reality is, as a follower of Jesus Christ, we can live in peace. As a follower of Christ, we should live in peace. As a follower of Christ, we must live in peace. And that's what Paul's trying to explain to the Ephesian church here in chapter 2. In verse 11, I mean, he's, he begins by saying there is this, this cultural wall, there is this angst that has happened between two different nationalities, and this wall is significant, dividing these people. Look at verse 11. Remember, at one time, you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those who are called the, the circumcised. There's this not-so-subtle, and I'll use the word, racism, that's easy to see in this. There's name-calling happening between them. The, the Jews were looking at the Gentiles and be like, you uncircumcised heathen? I mean, the Jews could do that because, after all, they're special, they're the chosen race of God, and everybody else, therefore, is inferior. You, you, the Jew, the, the um, Gentiles would then look at the Jews and call them uncircumcised fools. There, there was, oh, sorry, circumcised fools. There, there's a view that, that, that the Gentiles would take that you would go through, you willingly would go through a radical surgical procedure so that you could be identified with a group who is regularly and consistently persecuted and exiled. Why would you identify yourselves with those people? You must be a fool. Now, now this angst and this discussion and this, this conflict between these two isn't just like uh, uh, what you hear Christmas week in your basement between siblings, like, that's my toy! No, it's my toy! Stop it! Stop touching me! This is way more significant, so much so that in the culture at this time, your ethnicity determined how I treated you. Your ethnicity determined how I treated you. Probably the most popular and familiar story about that was when Jesus used the uh, story of the Good Samaritan to, to drive home that point. Now, the Samaritan wasn't even a Jew or a Gentile. It was half and half. So the Samaritans were hated by all. And so as you heard the story of Jesus, it was completely unfamiliar territory for somebody of Samaritan descent to be the hero of a story, particularly a story of a great rabbi and a teacher like Jesus. That's, that was unheard of because your ethnicity determined how I treated you. Uh, Jews at the time of the writing of Ephesians we're not allowed to assist a Gentile woman give birth because all you were doing is helping another filthy Gentile into the world. Um, if a Jew married a Gentile, the family would have a funeral for him and just consider him dead. Your ethnicity determined my treatment of you. And I'd love to say that that was just true in the time of the Ephesian church, the time of the writing of the book of Ephesians. I'd love to say that that doesn't exist today, but we all know it does exist today, doesn't it? And, and a lot of times it's obvious, it's overt, it's, it's out there in the public for everybody to see. We see that from white supremacy in the extreme on one side to the extreme on the other side with the extreme carrying out of the, some of the Black Lives Matters group. 
You have all these extremes of racism that your ethnicity is going to determine how I treat you, how I view you, how I speak about you, how I interact with you. But, but let's be clear, not all of it's overt and obvious. Some of it's undertoned, some of it's nuanced. Some of it is secret, and some of it is denied. And, and just, just to say this, and this is going to get me in more trouble than anything else I say this morning, um, but it needs to be said. I'm not talking, when I talk about um, prejudice, when I'm talking about um, racism, please don't hear this in the context of the movement of the early 2000s of political correctness, and, and don't read into this the context of modern-day um, uh, railing against the idea of, of woke culture. So, so there's this awesome movie, and if you've never watched it, shame on you. It's called Princess Bride. See, 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 uh, uh-huh. that wasn't controversial at all. There's a, <laughs> there's a lot of lines, but I'm going to go with this one. You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And too often what has happened in our culture today is a pastor or a church or an organization has got up and spoke loudly about the truth of racism and the the horror of racism, the sin of racism and how it should be handled and how it should be just wiped out because we are supposed to treat every individual with dignity. And when somebody speaks like that, others on the other side of the fence, again, most often in artificial courage, go, woke, get out of here. You use that word, you don't know what it means. I'd encourage you to study what what the movement of woke, where it came from. And let me give you another word. When you hear a pastor or a church who says we need to call racism what it is, sin, and we need to throw racism out and have nothing to do with it and be sure that we are working for the justice of all people who have been created in the image of God, I'm gonna give you a different word besides woke if you're looking for a word. It's called biblical. I'm talking about the reality that exists. Racism existed in Ephesians. Racism exists in 2022. Racism exists in our immediate church culture. We're going to talk a lot more about that. But I think what's really important for us to understand is that Paul doesn't just say it's a problem. He gives us the solution in the middle of this passage. And and, and as much as I wish it was, the solution is not church softball league. Which actually, that's probably one of the most disunifying things that exists. He says, look at verse 12. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I skipped like the most important thing. Let me go back. He said the most significant problem, not the solution. Let me go with the problem. Most significant problem, <laughs> verse 12. Talking again, at that time, you were without Christ. So let me be clear, racism is not the greatest problem our culture wrestles with. Without Christ is the greatest problem of all humankind. He says, you gotta understand, you were separated from Christ. You were the opposite of everything we've talked about in the past weeks about being in Christ. You were outside of Christ. And then he continues, you were foreigners to the covenants of promise. You were unfamiliar with the covenants that brought us promise. You missed out on the promise of Abraham, the promise of an heir, a land, a future, a kingdom. He says, you missed out on a new promise that Jeremiah talks about, the promise of a relationship with God. You're excluded from the citizenship of, of Israel. That means you weren't not just on their team. You were their enemy. You were their arch rivals. You were totally hopeless and without God. Totally hopeless and without God. You want to talk about a big problem? 
That word without God means, is the, the Greek word is atheos. You have no God. That's not good. You are hopeless, without hope. It doesn't mean they walked around like Eeyore all the time, like, I've got no hope, but, but the reality is the end of their real plays, and we know where it goes. We know how the story ends. It's like watching your favorite movie three times, and your favorite character ends up dying, and you know that time, it's coming. It's watching Titanic and know that Rose is going to make sure Jack doesn't get on the door. There was a lot of room for Jack. I just want to be clear. But for whatever reason, Rose is selfish. But it'd be foolish for you to watch that movie Titanic a fourth time and be like, oh, I hope he makes it on this time. He ain't making it on. And that's what it means to be without hope. The future of these people only held trouble and it all comes back to the fact that they were without Christ. So people standing at odds with one another is, is bad, but worse is standing at odds with God. That's not a small wall. So it is. Actually, you've got two different walls going here. You've got this wall between people, between Jew and Gentile, this cultural wall, but then you have this other wall, a ceiling, if you will, between you and God, this spiritual wall. So this one's significant. This one's devastating. And as Paul walks through these things, he, he basically repeats what he did last week at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you, remember last week, you were dead? You, you were being held captive by the ways of the world, by the prince of the power of this air, by your own flesh? You were going to inherit the wrath of God. You were condemned. And then verse 4, perhaps the greatest verse in all of Scripture, even though all of those things were true, and you were without help and without hope, but God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that he had for you, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. You are saved by grace. The blood of Jesus Christ has finished work on the cross, made it possible for the walls to come down. Look at, look at verse 13. So he's walked through all these things. You Gentiles, you Jews, were fighting at it. And then you Gentiles, you were separated from Christ. You were unfamiliar with the covenants. You weren't a part of the, the people of Israel. You were totally helpless. You were without God. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been reconciled. Your relationship has been right, made right again with God. You have made, been made good, acceptable, brought near. You can stand before God complete and perfect, not because you're wonderful, but because Jesus is really, really perfect. And the righteousness of Christ has been given to you, accredited to your account. And because of what Jesus did, that ceiling has been demolished, and you can be brought near to God. So I'm going to ask you, has that ceiling been crushed down for you? Are you still trying to get through it yourself? I mean, that's where we really fall down on this, is we try to pile up our own goodnesses. We, we like to think that our way to God is a ladder. So if I just keep doing good things, I'll just keep climbing the ladder and get closer and closer to God. And the problem is that the way to God isn't a ladder, it's a cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross where you should have died so that he could make a way, a path, a means, a peace for you so that you could come into God's presence. It's so foolish for us to accumulate as many good, I'm just going to do this and earn God's favor. I'm going to do this so maybe then he'll love me, maybe he'll like me, maybe he'll forgive me. The problem with that is similar to, to going to a class and your prof hands out your final exam and you're nervous and worried. You're like, all right, I studied hard. I think I'm ready. And then he walks up next to every student in the class and goes, there's the answer key. You're going to do just fine. 
Now, why would a prof do that? I don't know. It's an illustration. Cut me some slack, okay? I wish I had that prof. Never had that prof. So you take the exam and the answer key is sitting there, but you don't use it. Instead, you walk to the desk of the prof with your finished exam that you cobbled together and tried to remember everything you studied, and you handed it to him and said, I did my best. And he said, what do you mean you did your best? I gave you the answer. You know, I, I think that I needed to do my best, so that's what I did. I didn't take advantage of the opportunity you've given to me. Yes, I know there's all kinds of ethical dilemmas with this illustration. Just let it go, okay? <laughs> I'm aware. Every illustration falls down. But that prof rightly should look at you and say, you fool. Every right answer was right there for you. But you chose to try to do it on your own. And so as a result, I'm going to grade your exam and you're going to get what you deserve instead of the gift I was trying to give to you. And that's exactly what we do with God. I'm going to do my best. No, here's my son, Jesus Christ. That's awesome, but I'm going to do my best so that I can earn that. You can never possibly earn it. Jesus removed the hostility between us and God. Verse 16, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. Verse 17, he came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who, who were near. He provided peace for both Jew and for Gentile because we both needed it desperately. He provided for us both access to the Father. Verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So what Jesus has done is he's destroyed the wall. He's brought us into God's presence in full peace. And we find the, the answer, the solution to the greatest problem we ever had. And that greatest problem we ever had is the separation from God. And the solution is that Jesus Christ declared it was finished. Not that it was almost done, but it's finished. And your sin and your shame can be covered by the spotless blood of the Lamb. That is by far the most important part of this text this morning. That in Jesus Christ, you can have peace with God. And on your own, you'll just earn your deserved wrath. Paul says there's, there's more. There's more to it than just that. Certainly we have the answer to our greatest problem. But there's a trickle-down effect. We also have the answer to a significant problem that exists in Ephesians, exists in Carroll County. He says, not only did Jesus remove the wall between you and God, but through the finished work of Christ, there is no more a cultural wall between you and another person. So in my scope of business, a lot of conversations happen and come up, and, you know, you want unity in your church, you want, uh, you want to build unity in your surrounding community and in your county. And the national outcry for the past few years, actually it's been a lot more than a few years, um, has been we want prejudices to be torn down. My, my personal, and this shouldn't surprise any of you, one of my personal heart cries is that that the, the, the stink of right-wing and left-wing politics would be removed from the church and the church would get back to being about Christ. We want chauvinism to be pulled down. I'm going to tell you that those things don't come as a result of education. Those things don't come as a result of a good book. They don't come as a result of t-shirts. 
the unity that we need in those areas come as a result of men and women and boys and girls finding peace and hope and acceptance and freedom from shame at the cross of Jesus Christ. Look, look, look at verse 14. He is our peace. He made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus finished work, reconciled them to God and to each other. The dividing wall of differences is obliterated. and There's nothing left standing. Verse 15, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. His blood created one new man in the place of two. It's no longer Jew and Gentile. It's no longer ravens or stealers. It's no longer blue collar or white collar, young and old, male and female, black, white, Latino, Asian, African, It's in Christ. And when you're in Christ, you understand you cannot look down your nose at another person. You can't dehumanize people. The people you were looking at are created in God's image, the image that was broken because of sin and redemption has been offered to to, to restore that. You are the same. You are unified in your need of a savior, and if you have found Christ, you are unified in the grace that has been given to you at the death of Jesus Christ. All right, so here we go. Just don't say it out loud. Is there a particular people group that you struggle with? Is there a particular people group that you struggle with? Whether it be an ethnicity, political affiliation, an occupation, a place that they live, a residence, an age group, or a financial status? Is there a particular people group that you struggle with? That, that, that you wouldn't say it, you would never say it, you would never say it. But there is something that raises up in your heart And there is, when you look at them, a feeling of superiority, or maybe not superiority. Maybe you look at them and you sense that they're just inferior, which is, you'd feel superior. Prejudice is a sin. And prejudice is a sign of arrogance. And it needs to be addressed in your heart. There is no place, there is no occasion for prejudice in the life of a believer, period. If your initial response in your heart right there was but, then you need to address the sin of arrogance in your heart. How? Well, actually, you start by, and finish, by recognizing the truths from last week. It says you did nothing that you can brag about. You simply were the reason that Jesus came to die, which is certainly not something you want to put on your resume. That, that you were dead. And when you're dead, you don't produce anything beautiful. You produce a stench. You were dead and helpless to do anything about yourself. 
You are being held captive by the ways of this world. You're being held captive by Satan himself. You're being held captive by the sinful flesh that is in you because of your sin nature. You were condemned to receive the full wrath of God for all of eternity. That's your starting point. That's what you get to brag about, which is nothing to brag about. But God, who is rich in mercy because of the love that he had for you, made us alive together with Christ. And then you, there's the shout of Paul at the end of verse 8 of chapter 2. You are saved by grace. People, you were saved by grace. Not by anything else, not by merit, not by earning it, not by deserving it, not by being a a handsome person, not by being a kind person, not by being a nice person, not by being a lifetime church attender. You have been saved by grace. So, as you wrestle with the silent prejudice of your heart, ask yourself this question. Why should Jesus have died for me? Why should Jesus have died for me? What did I do to deserve that? And if you have an ounce of honesty in your bones, you'll join Paul in shouting, because of grace and only grace. And as as we contemplate that and consider that and rehearse it over and over again as a local assembly of believers the local grouping of this church. We swim in the gospel and we're inundated with grace. When that happens, racism, ageism, elitism, chauvinism, whatever ism you want to throw in there, all of those should meet their solution in Christ. Those walls being torn down. There's there's no dividing wall of hostility between me and a person. There's no dividing wall of hostility between me and God. Praise God. There's now this peace. There's this restoration. There's this reconciliation that goes this way and this way. But he doesn't stop there just by tearing walls down. He builds a new structure. It's called the church. It says where where two men stood, there's just one. Look, look, look at what the definition of a church. Look at, look at verse 19. Let me, let me tell you what these people look like. Verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. A church is a people who are fully confident of their welcome, their belonging with other family members before God, regardless of their culture. Verse 20, they're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. They're a people. The church is a people whose foundation is the proclamation of the gospel over every area of life. You don't run after the hottest issue of every day, even though sometimes the proclamation of the gospel ends up including that. Your your foundation doesn't end up being what nation you live in. Your foundation doesn't end up being what language you speak. Your foundation isn't what music you enjoy. Your foundation isn't your political affiliation. Your foundation is nothing but the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and that alone. That's a church. Verse 21, sorry, the end of verse 20, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, there's a lot of discussion about, so what cornerstone? Is the cornerstone the foundational aspect, the foundational stone that that is set 
first, and then the entire structure is built on top of that and aligned with that, yes. But it's also the final piece of the building that everything gets built towards. So regardless of where you land on your linguistic study of what that word actually means, it means the same thing. Jesus Christ is your constant focal point. The moment you remove your focus off of the foundation and begin to build, your building ends up wonky. That the moment you forget where you're building to, you end up off-center. You end up without it being plumb. Your life is to be anchored on and driven towards Jesus and Jesus alone. And then he finishes, in him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you're also being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. A church is where God lives. When the people of God become fully aware of the grace of God and then throw themselves into the family of God. The watching world gets to see a little picture of heaven. When you understand the grace that has been given to you, and then it's like, I'm gonna experience this grace with my family, with my brothers, with my sisters. I'm gonna show that grace. I'm gonna wash in that grace. I'm gonna be inundated with that grace. When you do that, the entire world gets to look at what heaven is gonna look like. That's where we're headed. We're headed to a place where every tribe, every tongue, every language, every people, every nation will gather at the foot of the throne and worship the King of Kings. <coughs> we're headed to a place where the language that they speak is not English. I've shared this illustration before. This is, was one of the most profound moments in my ministry. One of the trips that we um, took to China, I uh, led a couple of trips there, <coughs> excuse me, with some young people, some young adults. Uh, we were able to attend an underground church. And uh, just so you know, it doesn't mean it's underground, it just means it's hidden. We were in... Uh, third or fourth level uh, apartment, a little two-bedroom apartment, and we crammed about 110 people in there. It wasn't very secret, especially when they started singing. Oh, besides the singing, we ate more dumplings than I've ever seen in my life. Amazing. Um, there was about, you know, 10, 12, 15 of us from America there, uh, the group I was leading, and and they were all there, and they were singing and, and translating everything to us, and, and there's a lot of stories there, but at the end of the service, the Chinese pastor said, I have an idea. We'll sing Amazing Grace in Chinese, and then you sing it in English. So our Chinese brothers and sisters started belting out Amazing Grace, and I have no idea the word. I mean, I can imagine the words because I know the song, but the familiar tune, you're like, that's it. That's cool. That's cool. And then we sang, and they were like, ah! <laughs> it was really bad when we sang it really bad. Um, we got done, and somebody, and I don't know who it was, somebody said, let's, let's sing it at the same time. And so you got like a hundred Chinese believers singing at the top of their lungs Amazing Grace in Mandarin Chinese, and then you have a dozen of us Americans who can't sing, singing as loud as we can Amazing Grace. Uh, in the middle of it, oh, the lady, a little tiny, tiny, I mean, she she was in her 90s, probably. Um, she spearheaded the, the dumpling cooking, so she was my personal hero. Um, but we were sitting next to each other, and as we're singing, in the middle of it, 
she had uh, put her hand on my arm. And I looked over at her and she, her eyes were just filled with tears. And she said one thing. Heaven. Because in that moment, it didn't matter what language you were speaking. What we were doing is taking our language and lifting it as loud and high as we could with others in a different language. And that's exactly what Paul is teaching us. People of God, we need to understand grace because when we understand the grace that has been given to us, we understand it's not about educational levels. It's not about financial ability. It's not about our ethnicities. It's not about any of those things. Instead, what stands before God is a redeemed people and the only thing God sees is his son, Jesus Christ. And we should shout hallelujah for that because if he saw us, we would spend eternity in hell. He sees the righteousness of Christ that covers us completely. Is that how you view other people? Do you view other people like your family? You are welcome here. I'm going to love you well. Do you you live like the gospel is the foundation of your entire life? Are you focused on Jesus, alert of the fact that other things are trying to take over your affections, your drive, your worries, your imagination? Are you shedding the things that are trying to consume you and instead continuing to fix your focus on Jesus and only Jesus? Are you living like God's present? See, that's what happens when the people of God become aware of the grace of God in their lives and decide that they are going to throw themselves into the family of God. And as a result, the whole world gets to see what heaven's going to be like. May the watching world see a unique story being carried out here, not just here, but in your homes, in your communities, in your schools, at your workplace. May we be a people who celebrate the wall-smashing joy of grace that's been given to us. We thank God for that, don't we? Because without that grace, we have nothing. Pray with me. Father, thanks for the truth of your word. Thank you that we have a, a love that we can't even begin to describe that has been demonstrated to us. Thank you that even in the days that we have proven over and over again that we don't deserve your love and your grace, that you are consistent and faithful and you never change. Father, I pray that you would give us the ability to to wash and bathe in that grace even more than we have. Forgive us for the prejudices of our heart, whatever they might be. Forgive us for, for looking at other people through the eyes of the world instead of looking at other people through your eyes. God, I ask that you would use our gatherings every week to remind us of the foundation of the gospel, to remind us that you are present with us, to remind us that, that we have grace that is so undeserved. Now, Father, I pray that as we close our time together, that we would be reminded 
of that incredible mercy and grace you've shown to us. May we celebrate it well. Forgive us for not celebrating well. Forgive us for taking it for granted. Today, I pray, as we prepare to head out into our day, into our week, that, Father, you would fill our hearts with joy and exuberance as we remember what you have given to us. For it's the name of our almighty Savior, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us?